turn to the book of John, chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18 today. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which is five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going up, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You can be seated. Father, thank you for condescending to giving us your word that we may know you. That we may know truth, the truth of who you are, and the truth of who we are. Father, I readily admit I am not worthy to know you, let alone to have your word in front of me, let alone to be able to be a preacher of your word. I am not able in and of myself to do any good for your sheep. I'm relying on you, Lord, to do that which only you can do, to bring life to your word. that we, all of us, would come to know you better today, that we would see you as more glorious today 
because of your word. Empower the preaching of your word, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. As I've said before, the Gospel of John is different than the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of these Gospels were written to give a biographical synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus the Christ. While John did include many events from the life of Jesus, it was not his main goal to write a biography of the life of Jesus. He had a different goal in mind, a goal that is summarized in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Chapter 5 opens once again with that all-familiar timestamp being given to us after this, which should cause us to remember where he had just been. Samaria, and what he had been doing, teaching the people in Sychar the truth of God's word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went up to Jerusalem. These are the lines that are given to us to introduce the next encounter that Jesus will have with the lame man. But something has changed in the book of John. John had contrasted Jesus with every Old Testament prophet, priest, and king in chapter 1. In the opening verses of the book, he tells us of the preeminence of Jesus, the Son of God, the light and life of the world. John then contrasted those that believe with those that don't in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1, when he said, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he contrasted how those that were given that right to become children of God actually happened. He contrasted that with natural birth. He said, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In our account today, John is going to contrast the true gospel, the true religion and worship of the true God with the man-made, man-ruled, man-centered religion that was in place when Jesus walked the earth. He's not contrasting the old covenant with the new. That's not the issue that caused the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. The old covenant dovetails perfectly in with the new. There's no tension between them. No. John means us to see, to wonder at, the false religion that was in place, Orthodox Judaism. This was a religion that at its base had the same scriptures that Jesus did that had at its core the same patriarchs that Jesus did. This was a religion that possessed the God-given temple, 
the God-instituted offices, the God-ordained practices that God had given them through his scriptures. They used the same language as Jesus did in speaking about God. They used the same phrases that he did. The manner in which John frames this encounter is supposed to highlight the mounting tension over the ministry of Jesus with the religious officials in Israel. And then to contrast the pool of evidence that demonstrated the difference between the true religion and the false religion that the religious leaders had put in place. Verse 1 is also strange than every other situation in the book of John. When Jesus went to Jerusalem to attend a Jewish feast, he tells us which one it was. He doesn't do that here. The reason for that is that in every other circumstance, the feast that Jesus was attending was thematically linked with the account that John then gives. This one is not. This account is about a couple of pools. Pools of evidence. You're going to have to pay attention. To wake up. You're going to have to think. Or you're going to miss the contrast and the pools of evidence that are given. I'm telling you right now, if you zone out, you're going to miss. You're going to miss the pools of evidence given and the importance of them. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an aromatic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. The, cool, the pool that's called Bethesda was actually two pools, side by side. They were about the size of a football field combined, and they were about 20 feet deep. They were in the northern section of Jerusalem, and they were surrounded by five roofed coverings supported by columns. Verses 3 through 5. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been there, who had been invalid for 38 years. Verse 3 tells us that these pools, at these pools, there was a multitude of invalids. Other translations will render that as um, sick and then describe what these people were sick with or why they were described as invalid. They couldn't function in normal life. They couldn't see. They didn't have use of a limb or two or any of their limbs. The man described in verse 5 fell into this last category. Now, if you're reading from a New American Standard Bible, a King James or a New King James, you're sitting there wondering why I didn't read verse 4. If you're not reading from one of those translations, you may have noticed that there's an error in the numbering of the verses. It went from verse 3 to verse 5. Someone missed 4. If you have a Bible that contains verse 4, it says something like this. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. That missing verse is something that we need to address. 
why do some translations have it and most don't? First of all, let's acknowledge that the Bible that we have in our hands, the ones that you hold, is not in its original form. It's in English, first of all. The Roman Catholic Church murdered a multitude of men and women who were just trying to translate the Bible from its Latin form into the common language of English, including John Wycliffe. The funny thing is, is that the Bible wasn't written in Latin either. That's not the original language it was written in. That would have been Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. It was translated to Latin. Secondly, the chapter and verse numbers are not part of the original text either. And thirdly, if you have a red letter edition, those red letters are not part of the original text either. And finally, there have been verses added to the original text. The King James and the New King James were transcribed from five 16th century Greek manuscripts. Most other translations use far older documents to translate from. In fact, they use as many of the oldest documents that we have in our possession as the base of his translation. We know that the word of God is perfect, that is completely inspired in the original manuscripts. But unfortunately, we don't have the original manuscripts. You may think that this is a problem, but it's not. The truth is, is we have many early manuscripts, as early as the first century, hundreds more than any work of antiquity, and 99% of the time, they are exactly the same. And from comparing these ancient texts with each other, scholars have found occasions where a scribe occasionally forgot a line, forgot a word, misspelled a word, put punctuation where it didn't belong. This science is called textual criticism. To the best of our knowledge, verse 4 was added at some point. It was probably added as from a scribe transcribing um, the text, and as a sideline, he wrote verse 4 as an explanation of what was going on. And as other scribes then copied from his, somebody moved it into, from a sidebar, into the script. It was used to explain why the invalids or what they were doing at the pools of Bethesda, why they came there day after day, and what they were hoping in, trusting in. It was placed there as another help for us. The problem is it is really no help at all. Because what would verse 4, what would be verse 4, makes it seem as if Jesus believed that God, his Father, gave his spirit and power to angels to do as they saw fit. That Jesus held that an angel came and stirred the water, and whoever sh was shoved in, jumped in, or fell in first was healed. It would be a bummer if you were the second one in that pool, if you were, especially if you were lame. But this isn't the case. The true Jewish religion had been, that had been centered on God had been hijacked with a new improved 2.0 Judaism that was, had a cultish group that held to a synergy of beliefs brought in by pagan religions that was very mystic, very what we would call in our modern vernacular, very spirit-led. 
we must acknowledge that this verse was added at some point. This may bother you. This may cause you to lose faith in the trustworthiness of the Bible. If it does, then you're just looking for an excuse to walk away from the faith. Why does this bother you if the addition of verse numbers doesn't? If the addition of the red letters doesn't bother you? You'll readily accept and acknowledge that those are man-imposed helps, but they don't shake your faith. You may say that they don't change the meaning of the words or aren't actually words added or taken away. But I would counter that more harm has been done to the flock of God through the chapter numbers, verse numbers, and especially those red letters than any other in all of the disputed text. No, if you're looking for a reason not to believe, you will find one. If you're looking for a reason to walk away from the church, you will be given one. If it isn't something like this verse, then it will be an offense that happens by a member or maybe even a church leader. Or it'll be that the church is no longer meeting your felt needs. But just remember that you're not walking away from organized religion or an organized church. You're walking away from Christ and his salvation. You cannot know Christ outside of his word. And as the early reformers clearly stated, there is no salvation outside of the church. Only a true church can baptize, and only a true church can distribute the elements of communion. And only the truly regenerate will covenant together with a true church. Even though it's flawed, filled with hypocritical people like us, simply because it is his body here on earth and it stands on the word of God. Okay, back to our story in verse 5. In it, our focus is moved away from the ground setting of the pools, the columns, the vast multitude was there, and to a specific man, a man who is described to us as invalid, lame, and lame for 38 years. This is the only thing we're told about this man. Not how he got this way, not where he was from, not his family status, just that he was lame and lame for a long time. We would be wrong if we thought that this fact was given us to prove the miracle that would soon take place was a real miracle. That the man didn't just twist his ankle and Jesus knew this. The focus on this one specific thing is meant to highlight the fact that he had given up hope of ever being cured. Sure, he was still brought to the pools, but he probably only came there to beg, to get some money from people who came to give money to the poor. And also to highlight what he had originally looked to for his healing. This is the introduction part of our verses. The stage has been set for our account to begin. One of the pools of evidence has already been given to us. Again, like I told you, you're going to have to think. 
the other pool of evidence is about to be given to us. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had been there already a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? In the midst of this crowd, Jesus focuses on one man. Didn't Jesus care about all the invalids lying there? Couldn't he have healed them all? Or perhaps he was just like Benny Hinn, claiming to be able to heal, but picking a predetermined person, a person who could be easily manipulated to look like a true healing, just to bolster his reputation. Yes, Jesus could have healed them all. He could have fed them all, clothed them all, provided a million dollars to each one of them. But he didn't. He was not in the social justice business. He had a much more important gift to give them, a much more important task than feeding, clothing, making life better or easier. He was in the salvation business. And no, he was not a swindler and heretic like Benny Hinn. He focused in on this man for the same reason that he focused in on the woman at the well. He had an appointment with them. But there's a difference between these two encounters and these two people. Here is a theological implication. There are places of worship and religious people that will tell you that Jesus loves everyone exactly the same. He loves the little children, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. But his life, his ministry, and his salvation proves that while his love for humanity is displayed in his goodness to all of us, he has a special love for a special group of hand-selected people. To these, he gives the ability to come to know him, to believe in him. These are the elect of God. This describes the woman at the well and the residents in Sychar, but not the rest of the people in Samaria. This describes that official whose son he healed and his entire household, but it doesn't describe the rest of the people in Cana or Capernaum. This is the contrast of chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 that I read earlier. And the question that Jesus asked this man really should have been a no-brainer. But it's a loaded question. While Jesus did heal him physically, this man will remain terminally ill. This man will not come to know Jesus as the Christ. Jesus will heal his physical infirmity, but he will not heal his eternal heart disease. Verse 7, the man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the water when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. The answer that he gives doesn't even answer the question that Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? Instead of giving him a yes or no answer, the man gives Jesus the reason why he's been there for 38 years. His response to the one that could in fact 
heal him is striking. Instead of looking to the one that had the ability to heal him, he is looking at the water. To the mystical religious God that he and the others there believed in. Instead of trusting in and relying on the God of the Bible, the word that they had been given, he and these others, like the religious leaders, looked to a very different kind of God. One that they had made up in their own minds. One that they had created in their own image. His belief is tied directly to the religious leaders that soon would be confronting Jesus. Leaders who, like this man, thought that God's power acted independently of him. That the power of God was accessible independently of God. That they could say how he was supposed to work and even when he could work. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus had heard enough. The confusion spewing from this man's mouth was more imaginary than the angel who stirred the waters in the pools. And instead of arguing with the man, Jesus just demonstrates the power of the true God. He speaks truth. He gives this man three commands that will change his life. Get up. This command in and of itself is amazing. This man had not gotten up by himself for over 38 years. And now this guy just walks up to him and says, get up. And the amazing thing is, he does. Jesus says, take up your bed. The bed was a mat that he'd been lying on. It was a stretcher that he was carried on. This man was being commanded to pick up that mat which had carried him for so long and carry it away. And then walk. Let us not forget the magnitude of what just happened here. We all, every one of us in this room, take for granted that when our minds tell our bodies to rise, to get up and walk, it does. And we do. This is a grace of God to us. It's just one of the many multiplied myriads of graces that God bestows on us every day, for which all too often we're not even thankful for or don't even think about. And this man had done nothing to be healed. He had no faith in Jesus. He had no belief in Jesus, either in his signs and wonders, like those of his hometown, or in the man himself, like the official, his household, and the Samaritans. This miracle had nothing to do with this man and his faith, his belief system, or anything other than the mighty hand of God, which had now acted upon him independently on him done purposefully on this day and this day was the Sabbath here again is the second pool of evidence 
Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Verse 10 is given to us for the reasons of verses 1 through 9. The account of the, of the healing of the man wasn't about him so much as it was about the reason that he and all those other blind, lame, and invalid people were laying at the pools of Bethesda at the first place. The religious leaders <coughs> and the system had forsaken the God that they said that they served and had separated him from his power. And in doing so, allowed human tradition to take the place of the truth of who God is. According to the oral laws that had been added to the law of God, they were tasked that were expressly forbidden on the Sabbath, and then rules to govern those that were allowed. Carrying a mat was expressly permitted. So you could be thinking to yourself, what's wrong with guarding the laws of God, with being very clear where God hasn't been clear? and giving people rules to help in keeping the law. Aren't we supposed to keep the law? Weren't they commanded to keep the Sabbath? So what is wrong with adding rules to let you know whether or not you're actually doing that? Isn't this helpful in being obedient to the law of God? No. These rules, traditions, do nothing more than make people feel religious to feel spiritual, to feel like they know God when in fact they don't. They are given to people to allow them to think that they can, within themselves, keep the law of God, that they can be holy as God is holy. This man who had been lame for 38 years was now miraculously walking and he was, for the first time, carrying his mat. And both of these things are evidence of that miracle that had taken place. But the problem is, is he ran afoul of the religious system. He broke one of their rules. Verses 11 and 12. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is that man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? The man, the one who had been healed, was pretty quick to deflect from himself to the one who told him to do that which for, until a couple seconds ago was impossible for him to ever to do. And the ironic thing is that the God squad is pretty quick to move their attention from the one who is breaking their laws to the one who healed him. And did you notice that they completely glossed over that whole statement by that man? The part where he said, the man who healed me. It was perfectly okay to have the blind, the lame, and invalids carried to and from the pools on a daily basis, even on the Sabbath. That this man had done that for years goes unquestioned by these men. But the healing that happened in an instant that caused this man to break their law was something that they knew God would never do. That becomes their object of scrutiny. They saw a violation to their laws and not a miracle. Verses 13 and 14. The, now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This man, this lame man, had been excluded from many things in his life for the last 40 years. Entering the temple was one of those things he had been excluded from. It wasn't because he couldn't find someone to bring him into the temple. It was that the Jews forbade him and all others that they considered unclean from entering the temple. These regulations were added to the law of God. A man instituted addition that were built upon the Levitical laws concerning those that could serve in the temple and those who could not. And just like with other aspects of God, these men had taken his word and improved upon it, had given him a hand explaining the finer points of it. And now this man is taking full advantage of the use of this body that now works, now that he is no longer lame, no longer forbidden from entering the temple. And what Jesus tells us, man, is something we need to consider. First, we must not think that because a person has an infirmity, a disability, that they can't sin. That they're not a slave to sin. They need the gospel just as much as we do. This man's ability to walk or not had nothing to do with the state of his heart. It's no harder or easier for a person with an infirmity to sin than one who is considered whole. Secondly, what are we to make of the warning that Jesus gives him? Was he struck lame because of sin? Are all infirmities caused by sin? Are infirmities the punishment for sin? To the first question, was he lame because of his sin? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But can, can sin cause infirmities? Yes. There's always practical consequences to sin, like losing a job because of drug use, getting AIDS because of sexual promiscuity, becoming paralyzed because of a drunk driving accident. These are all results of sin. Okay, so are all infirmities, deformities caused by sin then? Yes and no. Yes, in that through the actions of Adam, sin entered the world and brought death, disease with it. And no, if this were the case, then we all would be blind, lame, and invalid because we all sin. And at another time, Jesus was asked if a man's blindness was because of his sin or his parents' sin, to which Jesus answered, neither. It was given him to bring glory to God. John 9, verses 1 through 12. What Jesus is doing here was revealing himself to this man and revealing to this man the reality of who he is, a sinner, and that there are far worse consequences than being lame. So what specific sin is Jesus speaking of here? Or is he speaking about all sin in general? We have verses within John that are given to answer what Jesus meant here. 
Jesus said in John 8:24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In this verse, Jesus is talking specifically to Pharisees concerning who he is and the sin that remains in them. And then he said in John 16, 9 through 11, speaking of the helper that he would be sending, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because a ruler of this world has been judged. And then he summarized this sin in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 15. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This was a sin that Jesus was telling this man to no longer commit. This is the summation of all sin. Our understanding of who Jesus is and who our God actually is. And what was the reaction by this man to the caution that Jesus has said that told him to sin no longer? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. The action of this man in verse 15 is both natural and at once confirmation of the warning that Jesus had given him in verse 14. It was natural that this man believed that Jesus could not be God because he healed him on the Sabbath. Even though he had been ostracized by the religious community for most of his life, they had never recognized, he had never been recognized by the religious leaders, had never been spoken to by them. To them, he had been an object as they walked on the side of the road when they walked past. But still, they represented God that he served. And now, he had been spoken to by them. And even better, they had information that they would want to hear. He would be listened to. He would be given an ear paid attention to, perhaps even rewarded. These men did the same thing when Judas approached them concerning information about Jesus. They were very happy to listen to him as well and welcome him in as one of their own. Verse 16, and this is why Jew, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing the thing, these things on the Sabbath. We aren't told of any persecution in the book of John up to this point. What verse 16 is meant to tell us is the mindset of the religious establishment against Jesus. It's given to point out the sin that was in them. These men had already crucified Christ in their hearts. They had decided that he could not be the Messiah, that he was a heretic because he broke their rules. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Here, in this one statement, is the crux of the conflict between Jesus and the entire religious system. 
He and the Father are one. He is God. And he has proven this fact by his actions in turning the water into wine, the healing of the official son from afar, and the lame man in an instant. But it wasn't his actions that caused the problem with the religious leaders. It was on what day that he healed on that was the issue. He had broken the law. This proved, at least to them, that he wasn't divine. And now, his statement that he made concerning the Father working and that he did it as well was the final nail in his coffin. Verse 18 tells us, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. We have, we have been prepared for the truth of the deity of Christ from the very beginning of the book of John. In chapter 1, he has shown Jesus to us as God through pencil drawings. Verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And we've been prepared by the, for the reaction by the religious leaders, the lame man, and even the most of the rest of the Jews. Verse 11 of chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. These truths that have been sketched out to us before with pencil are now given to us in three dimension and in full color. The religious leaders knew what Jesus was saying in this statement, which is why they wanted to kill him all the more. They could not fathom that this lowly man who held no political power, who had been born under questionable circumstances to a poor family, who broke the law of God, could be God. This was out of the question for them. But he claimed to be God, which is in and of itself was not the reason that they would persecute him. We know this because of verses such as Acts 5, 33 through 39. Others had and would come claiming to be the Messiah, to be God. But that didn't automatically cause you to be put on the most wanted list of these religious leaders. No, the main issue was that Jesus was claiming to be God, but not the God that they were preaching, that they served, that they taught. And this they could not abide. This is what we're to take away from this section of Scripture. There is a distinction made at that pool. There were two pools there. Two pools of evidence that pointed to completely two different gods. A distinction between the true and living God and a man-made, man-filled, man-created God. There was a pool of evidence for both of these religions found there. The, religious, the Jewish religious system had taken the word of God, which they had been graciously given, and added to it 
added man-made, man-imposed traditions within it, helps that were to make people feel better, to give the unsaved the sense that they were religious, that they were okay, that they could, in their flesh, obey God, that they could earn salvation through works. They added specifications to the law, developed programs for the law, instituted titles and offices within the church to support these laws. So what? What is the harm in having programs and adding to the law if it helps people? What is wrong with updating and making religion relevant? The pool at Bethesda is what? It was because of the man-made traditions, the man-imposed helps, the programs, the offices that these men and those who had come before them had instituted that the thought that God could and would work separate from himself and that his power could be wielded by an angel, that he would randomly stir the water, healing some lucky person like a bingo game that enabled the lame to look to something other than God, to make them feel religious, to feel good in their lameness. After all, they could still keep the law. They were confident in the fact that they were saved by birth into this ethnicity and that they were holy by their works. The evidence of their bankruptcy and the corruption of the truth of God was that pool. But it was a beautiful pool, a pool that was well attended, where kind works were performed. People came and gave to the poor there. That the masses could come and see what they called true religion at work. It made you feel good, feel religious, it gave you those Holy Spirit goosebumps just to see it all happening. The contrast came to that pool, to the pool that spoke not of him, but of a false deity that worked as man determined that he should, a false god that was being worshipped in a new and improved temple. A false religion that combined the true elements and offices that God had given them with man-made ones. But the true God was no longer being worshipped. No longer being presented or taught by those who had the temple. Remember, the temple was there. But we are told in Ezekiel chapter 10, as they were, that God had left that temple long ago. And he didn't, these people didn't care. They continued on with their version of worship. After all, they still had the building. They still had the Levites, the priests, the utensils. Who cares whether or not God's there or not? They added to those offices the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin. And now a pagan king was renovating that temple. Not as God had instructed, but it was adding to it, beautifying it, making it into one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it didn't seem to bother them. 
In fact, it made them feel all the more that God was pleased with them. Jesus came to that pool and proved that what they worshipped was not the true and living God. Jesus is that God, and he proved it by healing the lame man at the pool on their Sabbath. This is his pool of evidence. So what's the point of all this? Well, here's the point. Theology matters. We are told in Colossians 2, 8 through 10, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How and what we do in the church hour and what happens in the church and even in what we call the church building matters. Theology matters. It mattered to Christ, which is the point being made here in these verses. This lame man who had been lame for almost 40 years felt okay in his religious standing with God. He believed he was saved. He was perfectly fine seeking a false salvation from a false God that was based around and under the covering, the umbrella of the true God, the true church. Jesus came and stood in stark contrast to this false religion, to these man-made traditions, to this false God that man or that made people feel good in their sin and the religious system could not abide him theology matters these religious people taught from the same bible that jesus did they worshiped at the same temple that he did They said, they used the same phrases and said the same words that he did. And they worshiped a false God that could not save. Dear ones, we are called to take stock of where we, as a people, as a church, stand. There is a pool of evidence at our feet. What happens around what we call the church? How those within the church act because of the teachings of the church? These are the things that make up the pool of evidence that proves who and what we worship. We can say that until we're blue in the face that we love the Lord, that we are Orthodox. After all, we're Southern Baptist. We can point to the Christian flag standing proudly in the corner and the American flag in the other corner. We can point to our VBS programs, to our Sunday school lessons, to our worship band, to the multiple committees, all as evidence that we worship and serve God. But are those that fill the pews bored with Scripture? 
filled with those that read more heresy than they do the word of God, that find nothing wrong with Beth Moore or T.D. Jakes, that they get much more hot under the collar over the mention of Calvinism than they do with women pastors or homosexual weddings, that are willing to argue for the right to murder babies in the womb under the right conditions as long as it falls under the heading of pro-life are much more adamant against divine election and predestination than they are with Christian yoga or laughing along with the Tiger King. That teaches that while God is sovereign, he's not sovereign over salvation. We are sovereign over that. We get to choose whether or not we're going to accept him. These people are a pool of evidence. And they are evidence of a false religious system that is no less anti-Christ than these Jews who've already predetermined in their mind to persecute Jesus. Theology matters. What pool of evidence do our lives point to? Our church. Are we truly worshiping the living God of the Bible? If we're confident that we are, do we still then approve of the pool of Bethesda? Where a false God, a false religion is being preached. Are we content not to rock the boat, to go along just to get along? We do it for the people. Look at the nice, good, sweet people that are meeting at that pool of Bethesda. Sure, they hold to some weird theology. Sure, they teach some strange doctrines. Sure, they have programs that we know that are not scriptural. But what's wrong with that? Look at the setting. Look at the temple. Look at the crowd. They say that they worship God. And they do teach the Bible, well, kind of. There is a pool of evidence that proves their theology. It is found in the actions of the people that it represents. The preaching and teaching that is founded on. It's either orthodox or it's not. There is no middle. And if we truly care for those people, we would do as Jesus did and warn them. This is a dire warning for pastors, for me. I know that I am responsible for you, the sheep that God has given me to watch over, to care for. I am responsible for what I feed you, what I teach, and which version of this God I present to you. This is also a dire warning for you, his sheep, as well. Jesus went directly to that man in that temple, the temple that he had left long ago and warned him to sin no longer. That the consequences of remaining at that pool, in that sin, 
would be far worse than 38 years of lameness. Theology matters. Let us examine ourselves and determine what pool of evidence we stand by. And if theology matters, then let it matter and stand firm in the conviction that it does. Let's pray.